Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. We have Dr. Stuart Ritchie on the show. Stuart is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Cognitive Aging and Cognitive Epidemiology in the University of Edinburgh's Department of Psychology. I'm sure he'll tell me I mispronounced that word. <laughs> His research focuses on how intelligence develops and changes across the lifespan, what might influence it in childhood, and how we might prevent it from declining in later life. His studies of intelligence have been published in journals such as Psychological Science, Current Biology, Child Development, and Intelligence. Thanks for being on the show, Stuart. My pleasure. Hi. Is, is it Edinburgh? Did I totally mispronounce uh, it? We would say Edinburgh, mm. which I realize Americans have real difficulty with, but uh, Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Okay. Edinburgh. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. I've tried to like mix it with the accent a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, love, I love getting my American friends to do attempt Scottish accents because it's very, very – they sometimes go English. They sometimes go Irish. It's very difficult for them to get a Scottish accent right. It could go many directions. So you're Scottish by background? I am indeed. Yes, I'm just from near Edinburgh. I'm one of these really boring people that goes to the university near yeah. where he's from. Yeah, but it happens to be a world-class university. It's so, not bad. <laughs> so it's not just – you're being very modest there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place and it's a good psychology department. We've got some great people including – I mean I imagine we're going to discuss this but yeah. we've got people like Ian Deary in our department who's a big researcher in the world of intelligence and I guess we'll talk about our um, Lothian birth cohort studies at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, which is what I'm working on at the moment. Mainly. Great. So how did a uh, Scottish lad such as yourself get interested in intelligence research? Well, I think being in the presence of people like Ian Deary actually is, is, is very influential. So we had Ian when I did my undergrad degree. We had Ian Deary give us his lectures and he's a fantastic uh, lecturer, fantastic speaker. I don't know if you've seen him uh, I have. Uh, talk. There's plenty of videos online if anyone wants to uh, go and look those up. 
but uh, but he's he's extremely inspiring. And so I, I did my PhD at Edinburgh as well, not with Ian, but as I was doing my PhD, I kind of gravitated towards intelligence research because we started doing some individual differences stuff, and then we got chatting, and he talked about this data that he had uh, available, and so. It's one of the it's, it's one of the most interesting studies around, and so that's kind of where I ended up. So you didn't enter. You did your undergrad there as well, right? I did. I, again, super boring. Undergrads, <laughs> PhD, and postdoc all in the same. Uh, right, the whole shebang. So yeah. you didn't enter as a fresh faced freshman, like saying I need to study the determinants of IQ. Develop. Not at all. Not at all. No, I was interested in in psychology more more generally, and in fact, I did my undergraduate dissertation on psychopaths, psychopathy, and oh. predicting predicting like people's it was an it was a kind of it was a kind of cognitive psychology type experiment where we were sort of predicting people's reactions to fear stimuli and things like that so it wasn't even iq wasn't even a, a big part of that and it's as i say i slowly sort of shifted towards doing intelligence research from there sure so your book is uh very enjoyed it it's an easy read i highly recommend it for people who want a, a sensible introduction to the topic. You kind of ended the book on the question, why is intelligence research so controversial? But I'd like to start this interview with that question. Sure. Because I think it kind of paves the way for a lot of our discussions today. Why, and, and this is certainly the case in the United States of America, and is, is it still, I didn't find it as controversial when I, so as you know, I did uh, my master's thesis with Nick McIntosh in, in yeah. England, Cambridge. I didn't find that research as controversial over there. In fact, I found the media was the media was fascinated with the research, but I didn't find like they they actually treated it as those controversial or racist or sexist. So, do you do you see that in your own country in, in Scotland? Yeah, no, you do see it a little bit, and um, especially when you bring any kind of biological aspect, whether it's brain related or genetics related. Whenever you bring any of that stuff in, people get this kind of this kind of specter of uh, determinism starts to appear, and people really start to freak out. Well, let's and, unpack and... that. Let's unpack sure. that because I'm not convinced that I think there's, there, and I really want us to get at the root of this because I saw a study, um, you know, studies there on the biology of compassion. No, that's not controversial. <laughs> people, yeah, yeah. Um, people are like love that research. They're like, see, I told you that kindness is innate, right? Yeah, and people like that. Yeah, so, no, you're right. You're right. So there's something specific about the biology of intelligence I think is uniquely different. So I think there's a – I mentioned this in, in, in the book a little bit. I think there's a kind of historical problem with uh, intelligence research or intel, intelligence testing okay. in, in the UK because of the way that the education system used to be here. We had the 11-plus test up until the 90s, I think. And it was a, an IQ test, which you had to do when you were 11, which determined whether you would get into a grammar school, which is the school for um, you know people who are, who are going to go on and study more difficult subjects. No pressure. No classics, pressure. Really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you would go to a, um, a secondary modern, and that was the other, kind of, the other kind of school. And so the weird thing about that is that, well, perhaps not the weird thing. The bad thing about that was that the secondary moderns were really, really badly uh, resourced they were kind of notoriously bad, falling apart. Teachers were not so good, you know, didn't have any resources for the kids. They were supposed to prepare people for more vocational career paths. And they didn't do that at all. And, and, and grammar schools got all the focus, all the attention, all the resources. And so I think a lot of people who saw that system and felt that pressure and in some cases failed the 11 plus themselves and ended up in a really bad school come to view IQ tests as a kind of a tool for dividing people and separating people. And uh, so we don't have that education system anymore in the UK. That's We have comprehensive schools now where everyone goes to the same school. Um, there are a few grammar schools that are still selective, um, mainly in England. There are a few grammar schools where you know you have to do the IQ test to, to go in. 
and there obviously are private private schools um, that you can send your kids to if you if you pay. But normally people will go to a comprehensive school where people of all abilities are all together. And so, yeah, I think there's a generation where the 11 plus and generally IQ testing represents a way to split people up and divide them. And I think that's where a lot of the reaction comes in. And then when you add biology on top of that, you're saying, well, okay, I'm determined to fail my 11 plus. I'm determined not to get into school. And of course, that's not what it means. But but I think that's how it's understood by a lot of people. Good, good. That, I'm really glad that you said that. So it's good to, I think, separate all these different threads of research and application on intelligence research. So for instance, you know, I, I've tried to wear multiple hats and try to tell people they're not necessarily contradictory from each other. I mean, you can be immensely interested in understanding the science of intelligence and do very good research on that. And then you can also be very interested in the best mechanisms for selection for various programs and things. And they're, they're separate issues. Uh, one, sure. if you do one, doesn't mean that you're not allowed to do the other. Or Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and we know that we know that things can have, you know, that effects in the scientific literature that are really well replicated. When you try and roll them out practically, they can have terrible consequences. So I was thinking about this the other day um, when I read some stuff on um, breast cancer screening. So there's a lot of controversy about whether breast cancer screening, which we know that we can, to some degree, you know, screen for, for, for breast cancer. And there are those vans that turn up in, you know, supermarket parking lots and you'll scan people and, and so on. I don't know if you have that in the UK. In the US, it happens here. That can create so many false positives that actually it can be it can be a, a, a dangerous thing because people go in and have surgery when they don't need it and so on. Yeah. So the practical rollout of that scanning and that sort of selection process was actually really quite, at least it arguably, very, very negative. So just because we know something in the scientific literature is predictive to some extent doesn't mean that we should automatically roll it out and start using it to select people and so on. So, you know, there isn't a logical necessity from theory to, to practice. Yeah, and I think that we've had some seminal figures throughout the history of education in our country, in my country, I shouldn't say our country, in my country, where the two did become synonymous. And, and so, yeah, the, the history is intertwined with all of this. So I'm really glad we're discussing, you know, Lewis Terman, for instance, mm. I mean, his own theory was that if you're going to select for genius, if you're going to select for giftedness, you know, take his tests, you know, take the Stanford Binet. And that's what he focused on. That's this one person making this decision. His test did happen to be reliable and valid, and it still is <laughs> reliable sure. and valid. But you could have equally have seen someone else, you know, who came up with a test of character in some way and a test of, a con you know, just a conscientiousness personality test and showed correlations between that and academic achievement and said, that's what we need to do to do yeah. single selection. So I think the ultimate, you know, and the best approach is to look at multiple perspectives. But yeah, it doesn't mean that if you study the science of intelligence, you're evil. It doesn't mean you're um, that you even have an opinion about yeah. how it should be applied whatsoever. Most intelligence researchers I've met, by the way, don't have an opinion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They're interested in understanding because intelligence is a kind of not uniquely, but but very human capacity that we're all interested in understanding how it, it's instantiated in the brain and, and how it, it works biologically and how even the structure of it looks on, in, a, in a cognitive psychological sense. And so, yeah, you can be totally interested in that without having any practical, you know, aspirations to your uh, research. So, part of it is, and you do such a good job cutting this down on Twitter, <laughs> um, is the, like med sensationalistic media headlines, right? You're very good at calling people out on that. And I think it's important. I think there's a role for, for you, <laughs> a big role, because, you know, I see pressure myself, like when, you know, whenever 
I want to write something, a book or something, and, and I'm just, just, I say, I just want to talk about how interesting the research is. They say, no, no, tell us, what are the five practical takeaways? And it's like, do I have to? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, exactly, exactly. So I felt some pressure in putting, you know, putting this into the end of the book is, you know, why, why should we study this stuff? And, yeah. you know, one of the main ones I had there was, because it's interesting, and that's one of the that's one of the main reasons. <laughs> but that doesn't you know, seem to be a reason that the media and the publishers find an interesting reason in itself. <laughs> not just media and publishers, but yeah. grant funders too, right? People yeah. who, you know, when you write a, a, a grant to apply to, you know, in in the, in the US, yeah, and um, the the National Institute of Health in the UK, the research councils, you know, you've got to have something in there about how you're gonna how your research is going to be practically applied and how it's going to be super important for medical research or whatever it happens to be. And and so that's easier in some in some aspects of intelligence research than, than others. So for instance, if you do cognitive aging stuff like I've been doing, there's 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 a clear practical consequence to the research there, which we can discuss later if you want. But when you're just wanting to understand for the sake of understanding, it's much more difficult. And you do feel that pressure to just kind of say, Well, I guess in some way it's gonna be helpful for understanding uh selection and then you get into selection immediately and it's really tough. So uh, yeah, I, I think there's a big pressure in the media and from funders and you you know you you see this when scientists write press releases about their work you see people saying oh uh, this new genetic variant that we found is going to lead to massive breakthroughs in medical research to help people with dementia and you go, really is it or, or is it just one small step on the way uh, to, to to doing that and so Absolutely. i think it's a big pressure and it's one of the major problems in you know in science and scientific publishing at the moment is this pressure to big up your findings and make them seem way more important than they actually are. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that. And you know, these genetic findings, we're talking correlations or effect sizes that are like so minuscule that in terms of like if you're going to sensationalize it, geez, like that's the least finding you should sensationalize because <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you like just think about this statistically, like if you put a confidence interval around some of those single gene correlations with a trait, I mean, we're saying like you have a better chance of developing a disorder with that gene if you like i'm sure we can come up with something funny you know yeah yeah i mean we're starting to make much more progress with the the genetic stuff and and, and now you can you can kind of glom together all these genetics uh, uh, findings that we've had into polygenic risk scores and there's loads of cool stuff um, on that which again we can uh, discuss if you want we've got some cool well, stuff we could talk for five days I well, absolutely yes <laughs> but yeah often uh, some some humility i think is required in a lot of these a lot of these studies but the structure of the scientific system unfortunately is, is not really set up like that because we're always trying to get papers in high impact journals we're always trying to get new grants and so on and so you know bigging up your finding is a kind of pervasive problem and you know that's why when we see these headlines and when we see news stories that scientists are quoted in and so on we do have to have some degree of skepticism about these findings absolutely so now that we got that out of the way maybe we should say what is intelligence <laughs> maybe we should talk about that <laughs> what parameters or boundary conditions do you put around this seemingly nebulous concept do you know i mean i opened the book with this the kind of consensus definition on intelligence from the uh Gofferson? Uh, is that the Gofferson? yeah the Gofferson yeah, paper yeah, yeah. which i think is a nice definition which is you know, I don't know if it's if you got it there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ability to catch on and stuff, but maybe I should read it because I don't have it perfectly memorized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just I've got the PDF of my book here. I can go through. I gave away all my copies of the book. I don't actually have any copies. Of my yeah, book. cool. So, yeah, here it is. 
yeah, I didn't have any more copies of my book Wired to Create, and I had and I wanted to buy a present for someone. I went to the bookstore. I was like, bloody hell, this costs twenty five dollars to buy my, <laughs> my book. Like, and I bought yeah. five copies, and I ended up paying one hundred thirty dollars. Oh, and, and I was and, and and I haven't gotten any uh, royalty statements yet at all because I haven't paid back the advance, and I probably won't for a while. So I literally paid one hundred thirty dollars for writing the book. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. Anyway. Here we go. The definition, intelligence is a very general mental capability that, among other things, involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and learn from experience. It is not merely book learning, a narrow academic skill, or test-taking smarts. Rather, it reflects a broader and deeper capability for comprehending our surroundings, catching on, making sense of things, or figuring out what to do. Now, I present that definition in ungifted, and I say it's one thing. I think it's a reasonable definition of intelligence. By the way, it's one. It's one thing to say that's a reasonable definition of intelligence, and then it's also another thing to accurately measure it, or oh, to re- yeah. And and you know, these are things obvious to you, but you know, maybe our, our listeners, it's sure. use, it's useful to distinguish that. You know, I think that definition is nice. It captures our intuitive theories of when we say someone's smart or someone's not smart. But then it gets trickier when you start, you know, going to the nitty gritty of each one of those components and be like, what's the best way of measuring that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, some tests are, are better and some testers are better at doing that. And I know you discussed yeah. in the book absolutely. Um, the idea of, of intelligent testing. That is yeah. not just intelligence testing, but intelligent testing. That's right. And, you know, I think anyone who has, has tested some kids or whatever on, on these kind of tests will will know that the situation that they're in can often change the IQ by quite some substantial margin, right? There's going to be a true IQ that that person has, and I'm doing finger quotes, and people won't be able to see, but I'm doing finger quotes. They have right. a, a true one, one never knows what a true, yeah, because of error. But, but there's always going to be error, and there's always going to be error, and, and a lot of that error is to do with the kid's motivation, whether they're looking out the window uh, at the time of doing the test or, or, or concentrating on it, the attitude and the capability of the tester to get them to concentrate and put them in the right their bedside manner in, in, in many ways, uh, you would say, if you were talking about a, a medical situation. So, yeah, I'm totally with you that measurement can have a, a serious effect on this. And, and not even just that kind of measurement, but the actual physical aspects of the test, so the psychometrics of the test. Yeah, We've got this big sample now in the UK, UK Biobank, it's called, which mm-hmm. is going to be 500,000 people all tested using uh, cognitive tests. The tests themselves, and a bunch of other stuff, by the way, I mean, it's a huge study with all sorts of measures. The cognitive part is just one part of it. But um, the tests themselves are very, very brief. They're very, very easy. They go by in the you know the blink of an eye. And so they don't really have very good, as we would say, psychometric properties. They don't really get to measuring all that stuff you just said about catching on, right. you know, thinking of new, you know, think, uh, reasoning through problems and so on. And so we're actually now actively putting some new tests into that sample and we're going to retest some of the people with some better tests. So there's all these problems that I think a lot of people don't don't realize. They think that an IQ test is an IQ test and that's, you know, it's whatever they've had experience with. But in psychology, a lot of the trouble when you're reviewing papers, when you're reading papers in the in the psychology literature is saying, well, how have you measured IQ? And is the test you're using adequate? And was it tested in a decent way? Was it tested in a way that the people are going to be motivated to succeed and paying attention and, and so on? So yeah, I absolutely agree. Cool. And I, I thought of a question I wanted to ask you. Tell me if this question even makes sense to you. Mm. Can one's intelligence exceed their true IQ score? <laughs> it's, wow. it's, it's partly philosophical. It's something that we can never answer scientifically. But I want to know, you know, what if in terms of 
because for instance, I don't equate IQ with the with the construct of intelligence. I do say IQ is something and it's something important and it's reliable and valid. These tests are reliable and valid and it measures a significant slice of cognitive ability. Yeah. But I wouldn't actually, from a uh, conceptual point of view, I would uh, put in things like intellectual engagement like I talk about in, in the book or like a drive for curiosity, intellectual curiosity and stuff. So I do wonder, can someone's Let's say your true score, let's say we measure you perfectly reliably and valid. I know it's impossible, but let's say theoretically, let's do a thought experiment. Let's say your IQ is, your true IQ is 110. Let's just throw that out there. And in the real world, let's say you become a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Let's just do a, 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 let's do a thought experiment. Now, would someone say, wow, you've really cheated. That person's really cheated, cheated the, <laughs> cheated the laws of um, uh, nature. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I... I, Do you know what I mean? So I, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, I see what you mean. I think there's probably some boundary where there won't be very many Nobel Prize winners with IQs as low as that. So there's probably some boundary where you can't get a Nobel Prize or be Mozart or Beethoven or, or, or Brahms or Mahler if you're below a certain level. And, and those that, thresholds might differ by domain, for instance. Quite, yeah, quite. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. But I think definitely if you take into account all the other psychological aspects that are important, as you said, academic engagement, various aspects of personality, conscientiousness or grit, as I see it's being called these days. And I know there's some disagreement over whether grit is just conscientiousness or something else right, right, right. or conscientiousness plus something else. Or, right. uh, there's, there's contradictory results. It's probably just a facet of conscientiousness. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think, I mean, there's some, there's some evidence that would say it's something, it's something separate and some evidence that would say it's the same. I, I mean, I haven't made my mind up about that. I don't. I don't think there's enough enough research that, yeah. that measures it. But anyway, if you take into account all these things, yeah, I think someone's achievements in the real world can go beyond what we would predict from their IQ level. Absolutely, yeah, given a constellation of other psychological aspects. So yeah. I think that maybe the crux of the the issue, though, is what? Do you, how do you conceptualize that situation? So do you conceptualize it? As, it sounds like you could satisfy the situation as, well, that person has brought in other characteristics to achieve mm -hmm. what they did, whereas I'm throwing out the idea that maybe it's they've brought in other aspects of their actual intelligence that wasn't captured well by that test. Yeah, I think that's a... Does it just get semantic at the end of the day? Is that? I, I think it might. And I think it might get to the point where it's more useful to kind of differentiate split things up yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. reduce things a little bit so I, I always imagine these things as a kind of a, a little diagram with boxes and lines where there's the really the, you know the cognitive aspects and and even within the cognitive aspects you're going to have spatial ability that's been shown to be really important for some creative uh, professions right. sure and you're going to have you know verbal ability and you're going to have mathematical ability and all these different abilities that are all correlated together because they're part of the general factor of intelligence I see those as having lines that, that, you know, arrows that point into whatever you want to call it, accomplishment in your life. Yeah. But I also see arrows for conscientiousness coming in there, which is a, you know, a non-cognitive or the word I like to use is uh, conative. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like, it's oh, yeah. Word. yeah. Richard Snow used that term. Right, right. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it gets used enough. It's great. No. It's a great word. And, you know, uh, other arrows for other parts of people's, you know, backgrounds. So things like their social up their their you know the social class of their parents and, and so on and some of that can be traced back to genetics and some of that's going to be traced back to different environments and so on and eventually you're going to I kind of view the the science as building up to eventually understanding both the biological and environmental aspects of how people accomplish things in real life and we're only at the very start of understanding that now especially if you want to know you know specifically what the biological pathways are that are involved we're just making tiny steps into understanding that 
but yeah, yeah I, I kind of you think I kind of want to reduce things to the the lowest level and, and build this big complex diagram of what makes someone achieve well in, in, in their life. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. And I knew this interview would go better if we just did it like this, like organically, as opposed to I mean, I have this whole page of questions, but I knew it would go better if we sure. if sure. we did it mind. if we did it like this. So I want to talk through some uh, myths in this book that you debunk. And these myths, what they are is they're just extreme statements, right? I mean, that's what they are. And um, I find a lot of scientists really just are looking for the kind of the most the most reasonable <laughs> statement, you know, but that's not the statement that ever gets publicity. <laughs> so for instance, Dean Simonton did this study where he found that the uh, only ideas that ever uh, made it through the next generation about the nature nurture debate were those came from people who either said it's all nature or it's all nurture. <laughs> <laughs> everyone else, everyone else just gets forgotten and ignored. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I say something similar to that in the book that there's all these people, you know, screaming at each other on the really hard environmental line and the really hard biological line, and the people who are just doing the day-to-day -day work and you know publishing you know, important studies and so on, but that aren't making extreme statements are kind of standing on the sidelines, kind of wondering what's going on. They're not the people <laughs> usually that want to, you know, jump into a big political argument about this stuff, um, you know, between right wing and left wing people who are arguing over this stuff, because unfortunately, that's one of the problems is it gets correlated with, you know, political beliefs. And so that and it becomes even more explosive because of that. So yeah, I think the extreme statement are often so for instance, I uh, I wrote a review of a book um, that came out in the UK, and I don't know how how. Oh, I, I'm very aware of that review. I, a lot of people were sharing it on Facebook. It kind of <laughs> it kind of needed to be said. <laughs> yeah. So so this is um, a book by Oliver James, who's a clinical psychologist in the UK, who I think is is just completely wrong on uh, genetics. He makes very extreme statements where yeah. he says things like the new biological studies of intelligence or psychological traits have shown that there is no genetic effect on any psychological trait. And it's just like, you know, comically extreme statements like that that yeah. just cannot possibly be right given all the research that there is that are thrown out there. And yet, he appeared on the media a lot in the UK, he was on the BBC, sometimes with someone there to argue with him, but sometimes completely unchallenged to spread this stuff. I kind of despair when I see this stuff because there's a reasonable position that takes into account the evidence that says, look, there are genetic effects on psychological behaviors. It's one of the most important things that we know about behavior genetics. It's, a, it's been called a law of behavior genetics, that all psychological traits have some genetic influence. How we interpret that, though, is extremely important, and how we understand how these genetic effects are manifested in different environments and how the environments have effects on behavior you know, is all part of the, the science of this. And so making a statement like there, you know, these things are 100% environmentally determined is, is, is just silly. Likewise, saying that they're 100% genetically determined is, is silly too, although there are far fewer people that say that. I just think that a lot of people think that people are saying that when they talk about genetics. They think, whenever you mention genetics, that what you mean is, oh, well, that's 100% determined. No, that's that's exactly right. And I'm just trying to think this through. I wonder like, if we did like some sort of a study, like, could we find that it'd be inevitable that the most reasonable position is always going to be the most ignored position? Can we logically think this through because it's the average position? And in order to stand, you need to be unique or you need to say something to stand out in order to get the attention of the media. You know, you can see like neat experimental studies where we actually try to test that hypothesis, yeah, you know. Yeah. Or I bet yeah. some political, yeah. you know, scientist could look at how, you know, uh, politicians who make, although I think there's some argument in politics where, you know, the, the people in the center are certainly for a time. In America? Are we talking about America for a second? Uh, well, I'm, talking, I'm thinking about the UK. You know, okay. For a time. You know, someone who's very successful, like Tony Blair, who won three elections, 
pitched to the to the center and and you know didn't go the extreme right or the extreme left pitch to the center nowadays though you know there are a lot of politicians that are gaining influence who are very very left wing like Jeremy Corbyn in the in the UK or very very right wing like the Front National in France and we could discuss Donald Trump I guess uh, uh, yeah, I mean that's the, ob- the obvious <laughs> yeah. so that's probably so doesn't the center is not always yeah, the that's right. Yeah, I put that out there cheekily because I just wonder if that's a hypothesis. But I, yeah, yeah, that, no, but that, that, it's a fascinating question. But then I, and you said that's a what question? Fair question. It's a fascinating question. Fascinating it's question. Think about how you know how ideas that are extreme yeah. or, or moderate get kind of fed into the kind of stream of societal discussion. So fascinating. But in, the more I think about it, yeah, it's tr- it's not going to explain like a hundred percent of the variance in in this particular instance because there is something unique about the um, saying something people want to hear as well. So there's that element too. And like you said, the person who like is unique, like if my hypothesis was correct, like you could also predict that the person who uniquely says it's 100% genes would be popular too. But that person's usually crucified and not really popular at all. So, you know, I'm just trying to do the counter argument to what I said. And no, so, no, no, so, so there's something about that, right? About saying that, you know, the new science says, so, so people convert that in their head to think, oh, that means there's hope for all of us. Is that is that what it is? They say. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely what it is. And um, until you until you step back and really think about it, so you know this Oliver James book about it was mainly about parenting. So he actually phrased it in the terms that you said. There is hope because parents can completely determine the psychological traits and mental health of their children. Now. To him, that might sound hopeful, but to me, that sounds quite possibly offensive to parents who have, you know, who have children with uh, with autism and so on, who for many, many years were blamed for, you know, being refrigerator mothers and so on, were, were blamed for their children's, you know, um, autistic uh, traits. And we now know that a lot of that is substantially under genetic control. And so the kind of the blame is lifted off the, off, off the parents because it never should have been on uh, there. And so what Oliver James and people like him who don't want there to be a genetic effect on these traits. Uh, uh, what he is doing is is kind of adding this this blame back in. He, he doesn't ever ever you know come out outright and say you are. This means that autism is caused by parenting. But but the implication is 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 there, and it's 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 a kind of a, an ugly thing to think about. I think. No, it, people have these intuitive things that, and they just immediately like captures their emotions. So they're not thinking through the implications. I mean, Stephen Pinker obviously in Blank Slate talks about this at great length about – have you all thought about what it would mean if we actually lived in a society where genes didn't determine or right. influence anything? Right. Like, exactly. That would be a horrible world. <laughs> yeah. Governments could completely yeah. control their yeah. citizens' you know, outcomes by using yeah. propaganda and, and, and so on. I mean it's what – it's what uh, the USSR and, and so on sought to, sought to do to fully control its, uh, its people. So where are we at right now? You're on the cutting edge of this uh, with the nature, nurture, and development of uh, intellectual uh, capabilities. Where are we right now in that? Well, there's some big papers that have come out recently that are now starting to find the start of the genetic basis for differences in people's cognitive abilities. So we know, I guess we should say, just in case anyone who's listening is, is not familiar with this stuff, I mean, we know that there are genetic effects on things like intelligence because of twin and, and family studies. So twins, adoptees, and family pedigree studies. We know from looking at these kind of research designs that a lot of the variation in reasons people differ in their intelligence is is due to genes, but we don't know specifically what those genes are. So we've been looking for for a long, long time to try and find out what these genes are. For ages, we had kind of uh, this kind of candidate gene 
idea where you know there was some theorized gene that would be associated with intelligence, which turns out actually it turns out to be very very difficult to replicate a lot of these uh, findings. There's one that we know that seems to replicate almost every time, which is uh, APOE, which increases risk for Alzheimer's disease. It also seems to lower cognitive ability, especially in older people, even outside of Alzheimer's disease. But other than that, we don't really know. And so we have to now put together these massive studies, these genome-wide association studies. Um, GWAS the, is, is the, the acronym which people might have seen in the in the media um, to, to try and uncover these genetic effects because none of them are very big they're all very very small effects there might be tens of thousands of very 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 small genetic effects on intelligence that all kind of add up to the reason people differ so some of them might be you know increase the myelination of of, of neurons a little bit some of them might be responsible for neurogenesis in, in childhood some of them might be responsible for being receptive to information all sorts of things um, like that all add up to make someone intelligent and also a lot of them might stop damage from happening to the brain so it's like a kind of a an idea where everyone has a certain level of intelligence and then some of the genes are damaging and we want to avoid those damaging genes to have so it's a really really complex picture but a couple of studies have appeared recently one by us um, on this uk biobank uh, sample which is a hundred thousand people have been genotyped so far Amazing. and we found we found several hits that is we found several genes that are uh, genetic variants i should say that are related to differences in intelligence. I wish the IQ testing was a bit better in that sample, as I yeah. mentioned before. But and there's also another study on the way that's going to appear, I think, in the next few months that has an even bigger sample and that finds even more uh, genetic variants linked to intelligence. And I'm not sure how much I can say about that study because it's still not released. I know it's been accepted at a journal. It's not appeared yet. But it finds a, a substantial number of these letter variants in the, in the DNA that, that relate to intelligence. So. We're making progress. It's slow progress. And I think the only way that we're really going to start to advance our knowledge of this is if we drill down further than these GWAS studies. So we drill down into what are these genes actually doing? So is this a gene that, as I say, you know, uh, is related to neurogenesis? Is it a gene that's related to um, some other synaptic mechanism in the, in, in the brain? And to do that, we're going to have to do more lab studies. We're going to have to work with neuroscientists and biologists. We're going to have to do things like growing stem cells to test the differences between intelligent and less intelligent people's brains. There's going to be a whole panoply of scientific methods that we're going to have to use to really understand um, what's happening here. But for now, we're making uh, slow progress in understanding uh, genetics. Now, I say slow, but it's only slow in, in terms of, you know, we have to wait several months between every paper. Like, these are coming pretty fast now. Yeah. The first ever genome-wide association study of a a kind of social trait like intelligence was 2011 and there was a larger one in 2013 we published one uh, last year in 2015 we've now published another one in 2016 there's going to be another one in a few months so they're, they're coming and um, pretty quickly but it becomes ever more difficult to put together these large samples to have the statistical power to detect these uh, small effects but we're getting there yeah we're getting there and I was going to just uh, just cheekily say, so what's the practical implication of these findings? <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, well, no, no. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's a fair question, but it's like it's obviously not the only reason why you're doing this research. <laughs> so, no, absolutely. And, uh, and we've discussed, you know, the, 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 the desire for, for practical stuff. But the Design, designer babies. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, that's we, as I say in the book, right, we need to have a, a serious talk now, like a, a, a serious debate in society. Yeah. Uh, about these findings because they're coming. There's nothing that we're going to, you know, we're not going to be able to stop this research from happening. And we need to dis discuss now um, 
what's happening in terms of uh, our ethical yeah. obligations here. But what I was going to say was, we found these, you know, this this genetic basis, and what we can do now is we can take the genetic basis that's discovered in one study and then uh, apply it to a, another set of of people using what's called a polygenic risk score. So basically, you say well, okay, you've got an A here, and we know that A people are slightly higher in intelligence, and you've got a C here, and we know that C people are slightly lower in intelligence, and add those up across maybe 450,000 letter variants in the, in the, uh-huh. in the genome. Yep. And then I could apply it to you or, or me or anyone else, okay. and, and that gives you this polygenic score for uh, intelligence or educational attainment or whatever you happen to look at. And then you can use that score to predict other stuff. So we've just um, submitted a paper for publication that uses one of these polygenic scores to predict uh, people's mortality. Actually, the method we used was predicting their, their parents' mortality or longevity, if you want to put a right. you know, positive spin on it. So actually, using this, even though we've only got a little part of the, the picture in terms of genetics, we can still make meaningful predictions about people's lives from well, these... What are we uh, talking about? What's the effect size there? Uh, so the effect size was that... If you are one standard deviation higher on the polygenic uh, profile score for uh, educational attainment, okay. your parents uh, were four percent less likely to be dead at any at any point. Um, okay. uh, so, like people who are, if you split and if you split the, the a up into into kind of thirds of the of the of the data, people in the highest third of the polygenic score had parents that lived 0.75 years longer. Okay, so through course of a year longer than people who are in the lowest third. So we think this is a really quite big um, effect. So that, that's under review. At the How does that compare to uh, effects in, in the medical literature on like cholesterol genes or uh, stuff like that? Like, like- I, don't actually, I don't actually know if anyone's used this direct approach and um, looking at cholesterol uh, uh, genes or so on. I mean, there's, there's plenty of large effects we know on mortality, like things like smoking, right. um, social class. Wait, I, IQ uh, is not the same level as smoking. Sure, and IQ yeah. IQ is there, but we're not talk, we're not talking about measurements of IQ. We're talking about measurements of genetics that we know that are related to uh, right IQ, which is a which is a totally different thing. And, yeah, and, and that's uh, a very good point. And those are pretty uh, large effects considering what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we replicated yeah. that in three different large samples. We're really quite excited about it, actually um, about that about that finding showing that you can use these. So, if I was an insurance company, I would be thinking. Huh? How do we use these scores to, you know, give people uh, a, a higher or lower premium? Which is a scary thought, but it's something that, again, we're going to have to start considering if we know what these genetics are. People are going to want to use this information, um, so so we need to we need to talk about the the you know the ethics of of of, of using that and, and have a proper uh, uh, debate on this stuff. And I know a lot of people are. Uh, put off by this and, 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 and really don't want to don't want to think about it but, but the science is advancing to the point that we're going to have to talk about it <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of uh, yeah absolutely i mean there's so many uncomfortable things nobody wants to talk about like global warming nobody wants to talk about it you know that's, like, <laughs> a, that's a classic example a classic oh. example just let's just it, it's something that we can't really observe happening so let's just not talk about it yeah you know it's, it's a slow process that is very difficult to observe you know right in front of us right now so uh, someone else can deal with that it does seem like um, nobody really wants to talk about intelligence differences. Um, you know, my colleague, who I do have respect for, uh, a lot of respect for, Angela Duckworth, does work on grit, as you know. Mm. Um, her, her office is actually right next door to mine, so I hear. Oh, is it? Right. Yeah, I hear about grit a lot. Um, mm. 
But um, this is nothing to say about her, but it has to say about um, the public. So we have no problem talking about differences in grit. Um, we do kind of uh, sweep under the rug differences in cognitive ability. <laughs> but there's no evidence that I've ever seen that grit is any more or less immutable or, or can be developed than IQ, right? I mean, there's Absolutely. no evidence of that whatsoever. Absolutely spot on. And yeah. that's, you know, the reason people are scared about to, to think about IQ is that they get this kind of, oh, well, it must be immutable because we know it's related to, to uh, genetics. But there was a paper published by um, uh, Kylie Rimfeld and Robert Plumman uh, uh, just recently, just a, 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 maybe, a, maybe a month ago, that showed that uh, grit, measures of grit, yeah. are substantially heritable too. Um, and in fact, they also showed that they don't really predict academic achievement beyond stuff that we already know like yeah conscientiousness uh, conscientiousness yeah. although there is a paper by uh from our department uh, timothy bates tim bates yeah, yeah. Who, who who does seem to show that it that it that it, it does predict beyond yeah and i and i would add the cool thing about his paper is he actually looks at creative creativity creative achievement that's right so, yeah, yeah he has, so in terms of me personally i love that paper <laughs> well, absolutely. no wonder um yeah. so yeah he, he's a, a friend and colleague of, of, of mine does does really great stuff yeah um uh, and so, yeah, the debate, the, I would say the jury is still out on that. But, but what I wonder about, and in relation to what we've been discussing, is the, the kind of antagonistic way that a lot of the grit stuff is, is framed. So often you'll hear things like, you know, grit really knocks IQ out of the park when it comes to, when it comes to uh, you know, predicting academic achievement. Or there's well, a quote go, go. from Mark Gladwell about yeah. grit is like, the antidote to the cult of IQ. Well, go deeper than that because it, this is a let's look at an overarching pattern here. So, when Daniel Goldman's book was a runaway bestseller, um, the cover said why emotional intelligence matters more than IQ. When right. when Howard Gardner's book Frames of Mind came out and it became an instant bestseller, they marketed it as why uh, multiple intelligence is uh, why a single intelligence doesn't exist. So, there's something like like these be runaway bestsellers all, all they all kind of pit it directly against IQ as opposed to yeah. say well there because is it because is it boring to say like oh well um, it, success is complex it's uh, going to be a combination of i mean i say that and my book never became a bestseller so <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean i think i think saying well we could probably build a structural equation model out of many many variables <laughs> right. but is that the truth like, is that the truth i edited an academic volume called the complexity of greatness beyond talent or practice i think five people have read that um, but uh, it is expensive so maybe Maybe that's one of these academic books. <laughs> yeah. But I mean it's like – and the, the conclusion of that book is yeah, greatness, the determinants of greatness is complex. But but the best-selling books are the ones that have the, the following uh, uh, cadence to it. I did X and X research or I taught in the classroom. I uh, – and what I saw is that it wasn't intelligence. It wasn't talent. It was X. And whatever that X is, that's going to be a best-selling book. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Right? Am I right? I think that's – I think that is the kind of cynical strategy that's used by marketers that they know that people a like a like a new novel idea. Yeah. They b they like something that means that they can uh, manipulate it, that they can change it, that they can they can you know pull themselves up by their bootstraps, um, and they also hate the idea of intelligence and differences between people in in something as outdated and boring and and uh, and discredited as intelligence, and so. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I guess I wonder with, with people who are taken in by that, if they just took a step back and thought, you know, do, do we think that people who, you know, the, the, the kid in, in your in your school class who's just absolutely, you know, racing through all his math stuff, 
uh, or or writes these beautiful essays that she hands into the teacher like half an hour before everyone else. Do, do we think that that's not a meaningful difference between someone who's really really struggling? And do we think that that that, that doesn't tell us anything about how that person is going to do in, in in future? Not in every single case. Obviously, there are there are exceptions in, in, in every way, but. Do we not think it tells us anything? And, and so I, I often want to ask people that and, and see what their see what their reaction is. Absolutely. So look, I want to be mindful of your time and um, the listeners' time, and I have 555 more questions. So maybe another, <laughs> maybe some other time, me and you could just like drink oh. a drink a beer and just chat. Sure, sure. Because um, I really enjoyed this chat. I want to end with um, this, which I think ties up a lot of this. It says on the cover, "All that matters, intelligence." <laughs> now that was was that a marketing ploy, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> sadly, sadly, that has not to be a hypocrite. Yeah, there is a there is a series of books called All That Matters. I know, there's, I know that. There's but... one called like Modern Japan. All that <laughs> that's, that's like Judaism. All that matters. Hilarious, because that's not what you're saying. <laughs> I know exactly. So I actually had a text in the book that said, "By the way, I'm not saying it's, <laughs> so it's really unfortunate when people uh, when, uh, you know introduce me on on like little I've done little radio things wherever they say." Sir Richie, the author of Intelligence All That Matters. And I go, just, just a second. <laughs> I would say that the, this whole book is making the argument that's much more modest, which is I, intelligence matters. <laughs> Absolutely. That's it, period. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what frustrates most intelligence researchers is that they're not making the argument that intelligence is all that matters. They're just making the argument that it matters. Yeah. So um, I – you know. When I when I was trying to think of how can I um you know redefine intelligence blah blah and I and I included some of these other um, components like intellectual engagement and passion and three personal goals. My colleague Colin DeYoung made a very interesting point to me, which I still think about to this day. He said, "You know, Scott, why are you trying to expand the concept of intelligence so much? Why don't Why don't you just make it your mission to?" Just to, to explain to people its proper place and, and say that people value it too much in our school system and other areas. And you know, I, I, I didn't go that route. You know, I wrote this book, Gifted. I came up with this more expanded definition of intelligence. But I often wonder if I was wrong in that approach. I, I often wonder if, if it actually would be a more worthy – not mission, but um, you know, when I – just when I talk about this stuff, just to make it clear that you know this variable that a lot of that's been studied for the past hundred years, it matters. It predicts various things, but it's certainly not all that matters. And it's the public and individuals who make more of it than probably the scientists themselves. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I think I think not necessarily just the public, but but you know journalists and as I say, kind of as I said earlier, sort of antagonistic you know, re reactions to this stuff from other scholars in other in other disciplines. You know, for instance, go to any education school and tell them that you study IQ, and you know you, they will freak out. You know, if you go to an education school and and, and talk about this stuff, they just don't want to. They don't want to hear it. I mean, it, it's often the case that education schools are going down a kind of, kind of quite political line, often a very left wing political line, and they're not into this stuff. And and when whenever they talk about IQ in public. They will denigrate the idea of it. They'll say, you know, that this old, you know, cult of IQ and, and and so on. So if we could get to the stage where people, as you said, understand that IQ is just one aspect of success, one aspect of academic performance, one aspect of life, and uh, and a very important one it is too. I mean, for heaven's sake, it predicts uh, how long you'll, it, you know, an IQ test taken in childhood predicts how long you're going to live. But not a, so do other things. <laughs> but exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. so does loads of other stuff. Yeah. And 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 to build up a full picture of. You know the reasons people differ and the ways that we might be able to intervene to help people. We gotta we gotta take into account loads of stuff beyond IQ, but please just take into account IQ. I guess that's the message of my book. Yeah.
Well, thanks uh, for uh, putting it in such a easily – well, it was easy reading for me. I don't know because I know the research. Yeah, that um, was the plan is to, but, make, is to make it some, you know, something that people can, can read in just a couple of sittings and, and, or maybe even just one sitting and, and just you know, be, be pointed on to some of the, the older stuff, the textbooks and some yeah. of the recent research. And so, well, my yeah. Bible, my Bible when I was a 23-year-old uh, or thereabouts was Ian Deary's short history or short brief introduction to yeah. intelligence. I mean, that was my, like, I remember reading that in the, in the car of my parents. I, I just had these memories. And so I think in a lot of ways, you know, you've, I'm sure you've made Ian proud. And um, this, <laughs> this book is kind of like an update in that, in that, in that spirit, right? No, absolutely. It's yeah. a similar, it's, you know, his, his book is, is brilliant. And it's worth reading for anyone who's interested in this stuff. Uh, but it came out in in two thousand, and there's been a yeah. lot of advances. There have been a lot of advances. Oh my god! Yeah, I was literally twenty one years old. Oh my god! Right, right. Well, there you go. And so oh. um, this book I wrote was was attempting to, you know, I can't, I, and there's, there's no way that I could write as beautifully as as as, as Ian does. But it's attempting to update oh. on some of the more recent stuff that's happened. You know, you have your own style. And, <laughs> and you should own that. You should own that. I mean, the, uh, maybe we'll end this interview by saying how I first met you. It's because you flamed me on Twitter, and yeah, yeah. and I um I thought you were saying some sensible things actually. So I uh, said to you because uh, you know I try to take my ego out of this stuff because I'm interested in the truth as well. So I, I emailed you and I was like, I don't I don't know if you said if the stuff you said about me. I don't think that was 100 percent true, but I thought you had a, you did tend to like when I looked at your whole body of tweets. I was like, wow, this 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 he's saying a lot of interesting things, except for that tweet about me. But, it was something uh, like it was something like a, a working memory study, like a train working memory yeah, training study. That maybe I said it, maybe was. that you were like. <laughs> I think I think maybe a bit more positive about it than I would have been. I think that's probably what it was. <laughs> probably it's funny, but anyway, it's a it's it's a delightful chatting with you today, and thanks for being yeah, on the show. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. 
It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.